0: Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff Jr. are former apprentices of the legendary Stan Winston, and for the past 30 years, their company, Amalgamated Dynamics, has been at the forefront of some of the most epic and large scale practical effects in Hollywood. From the Graboids from Tremors to the Aliens and Predators and even the Dinosaurs from Jurassic World, Tom and Alec have been behind them all, and through the process, have built one of the most prolific practical effects studios in history. Despite their extensive accomplishments and indelible name in the industry, Alec and Tom still face the challenges that come with being a practical effects studio in CGI driven Hollywood. Condensed timelines, lower budgets, unrealistic expectations, and the ever-present competition with digital are just a few of the challenges that come with doing what they do. But regardless, Tom and Alec continue to fight the good fight for practical effects. We dive into the challenges and splendor of practical effects and learn more about ADI's creative processes behind creating some of the most iconic creatures in cinematic history – all of this and so much more on today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now, for your listening pleasure, here are Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis of
1: Amalgamated Dynamics.
0: <laughs> pardon, my, uh, pardon my incompetence there.
1: <clears throat> it, was right. the, it was the fucking foul language that I objected to.
0: <laughs> Terribly sorry to have a thing. So you guys are busy guys nowadays.
1: Yeah, we are. So it's, um... between...
0: Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and the latest Predator movie, and the upcoming, which I hadn't even heard of until today, Godzilla vs. King Kong. You
2: didn't see that coming?
0: I didn't see that one coming Really? It mm. was a curveball. Yeah. It yeah. was a real curveball, yeah.
2: I think that was the whole reason they did Godzilla to start with, just so they could team him up and, and, and put him up against Kong.
0: They can do like an Avengers style kind of... That's
2: yeah. what they're headed for. Everybody's doing it, right? It's working. Everybody seems to love it. It's, it's, I think I think it's kind of an offshoot of a uh, of binge watching, you know, where where you you want as much material as you can about these characters you've decided
0: to accept into your lives. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Seriously? Sorry? Hey, seriously? <laughs> On <laughs> some level, I think. All right. Good night everybody. <laughs> So when you are approaching these iconic, heavily established IPs like Godzilla, like The Predator, how do you approach taking those established characters to the next level visually? How do you keep a foot in the, in the established design while keeping something new and exciting with every iteration and every new movie?
1: A lot of our job in, in designing within the, these franchises is um, to present options to the director. So we really like to kind of bracket the design, where if it's a you know whatever the character is, not necessarily Godzilla, but a Predator or whatever, we'll design things that are just so far out of left field and crazy that we're pretty sure they're going to be um, they're going to be passed on, right? Uh, they're not going to make the grade, but we'll also then do something that's just a five percent change and then somewhere within that range you start to get a feel for what the director is looking for and then you land on um <clears throat> you know you land on the, the 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 changes that are appropriate to that particular director it doesn't mean that um you know it's not what the fans would want or but you know we're we are we are a uh, big on um Serving the director, uh, who is the guardian of the story, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that that's where we differ. We got a, a I got a, a question uh, recently on social media. Um, why does the the fugitive predator in Shane Black's The Predator look so much like the original Predator? And my answer is because that's what Shane wanted. And we we do a, uh, I think we do a, a, a good job uh, making directors happy. Got it.
0: So it's a matter of taking something to such an extreme initially so that the director will always kind of reels it back, but you always present an option. It's yeah. kind of like we,
1: we present if one way of looking at it is we, we present a really boring option and then, and we present a super, uh, uh, crazy out of left field option and then a bunch of things in between Got it. and then you find out where you like. it's the bowl of porridge, right? It's the Goldilocks okay. bowl. of Right, porridge.
0: right. Well, Another thing to mention is congratulations on 30 years. It's yeah, oh, yes, thanks. pretty extraordinary. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah. So, for those who haven't heard the story, I mean, obviously, you guys were both working under Stan Winston. How did you decide to to split off and create your own company, and how did what was the kind of origin story behind ADI? Well, I think
2: that the timing was was such that it was not about it was not about splitting off from Stan Winston and creating ADI, the Creature mm-hmm. Effect Shop, but it was about leaving Stan and and moving. We we both had this this passion to be directors you know filmmakers writers directors and we had this little project we had done and it was it was starting to get enough interest that people were actually setting some meetings up for us so we saw that coming and and, and we that was where we were sort of charting our trajectory anyway so it was it's kind of hard to go to stan winston and say you know we want to go op and pursue this and it's not like you 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 don't jump off of the coattails of stan winston and then and then you know jump onto somebody else's coattails there were there were no better coattails to be riding on be right riding. so it wasn't the goal to to go off and create an entity that was there to to try to uh... to try to duplicate or compete with what he was doing it was it was literally somebody might be interested in us as filmmakers and we have to give this our our total uh, uh, attention
1: so what happened to that project, Tom? It sounds like uh, things didn't go exactly the way you planned. Well, here we sit, 30 years later, and I've got to pitch this story. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a it was a fun um, script that we wrote that, um, and we did a short film. Actually, Tom and I worked on the original Predator, but we did not go to set. And when they everybody cleared off to go to Mexico to shoot mm-hmm. the Predator, Tom and I stood there and waved, bye, 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 good luck. And then we immediately started building sets in the empty shop. <laughs> to shoot our, our movie at Stan's place, and because we, we needed to have it wrapped up by the time they all got back. So we shot the short film. We had a script, and uh, Gail Ann Hurd was interested in it. Wow. And we thought, oh, this is great, and we'll bring this to Stan. It can be a Stan Winston studio picture, right? And, and it was an anthology, so Tom will direct one, I'll direct one, Stan will direct one. And um, I don't think, I mean, Stan was pursuing so many of his own projects that he was working on, you know, Labor of love, uh, type, you know, passion projects that I think that he, he was not able to kind of clutter his plate with our, uh, desires and our passion. So, we came to a point where we were like well you know stan has like six guys on payroll uh that he won't let go because he's loyal you know we, mm-hmm. we were you know guys that started on terminator like tom did and i came in a little later but we had done you know aliens and monster squad and leviathan and all that stuff and stan was very loyal and we thought well maybe um maybe now's the time for us to step out and uh get this movie made and then it didn't get made and uh that was kind of a good early lesson that uh you know you think that things are just going to line up that easy and they don't and then there was some months went by and we started to say um well we're not gonna you know we're not we can't go back to stan that's not that's not cool that won't feel right and and anyway we uh we uh started doing some jobs um did a few little jobs not even as a company right yeah uh,
2: just just working as you know, tom and alec yeah mm-hmm. you
1: remember and love them from stan winston studios yeah.
2: and and then we decided we should start a company we were we were working off of 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 the uh the, the generosity of people like Rick Lazzarini who let us work out of his shop because we didn't have a place to work and then right. K&B let us start Tremors out of their shop because oh, wow. we were we accompanied by company then and, but right. we didn't have a place to work so and, and, there was and a lot was, of a lot yeah, of support.
1: A lot of support and it was great because we started out with those guys. Lazzarini worked for Stan, Howard and Greg worked for Stan as well. On uh, Howard was on Pumpkin. Howard night, was on
2: them? Pumpkin. I have great, yeah. great memories of him on Pumpkin. Yeah, night.
1: I think Greg was there too, wasn't he? I can't really remember but uh, yeah, they, they're like, yeah, you use some, you know, pay us what you can and here's some shop space and we're like great we'll put you guys on payroll and they were sculpting tremors worms with us you know so it was was a good time and and um we always kind of carried that with us that that you know there's a lot of people that help you along the way and we're we're appreciative of that.
0: Well, I love that idea, and it was it speaks to what we were talking about before about this notion in the community about a rising tide raises all ships. Exactly right. It sounds mm-hmm. like practical special effects yeah. makers. You guys were all helping each other out.
2: Well, because we all had the same kind of background. We were all about the same age. We all loved the same movies. We all saw the same things as kids that inspired us to become this. So it there was a, there was, there was a, it, I think there was stronger camaraderie then than there is now, and I think for no no dire reason other than it's been we've been in this in this mode for so long it's just right. it's we, not- you,
1: you, we we uh we have our kind of um uh our, we have our companies and we have our little bubbles that we exist in right and, and we were friends with all these guys with mike elizaldi from spectral and shane and john from legacy and howard and greg from uh k and b um and we do get together with them on occasion. It's always a blast. You know, you go out and you have martinis like real grown yeah, and uh, talk about old times and all that stuff. And that kind of re- reinforces the bonds. Um, there have been times where, where as as a group, uh, we have been competitive. In fact, some people uh, not not within that group, but there have been some kind of ugly competitive stuff back in the eighties and nineties that um, we always tried to stay out of that kind of. Um, Stuff because like you know you just have to hope for that that there's enough work to go around and at some point you know it's going to come back to you you're going to need to borrow somebody's Hobart you know to mixing machine to right. make more foam latex or a bigger oven or whatever so it it, it is best to to uh, kind of you know. Bond together, and now that we're now that we have so much um, runaway production chasing tax incentives and CGI, kind of you know squeezing in on us and doing what we used to do, um, it it gives you a fonder feeling towards all those guys that you started out with.
0: Yeah. So there was a real magic time period for practical special effects. And do you feel like that story has been properly told during the time when all that, when Savini and Canby and you guys and Steve Johnson were all just making movie magic, and everybody there was a friendly competition? Right. Do you feel like that story has been properly told, either in a book I, or documentary?
2: I think, I think it, it maybe not in one contained single source, but I think I think I've seen some pretty good, pretty good accurate coverage. The only thing I find that that I, I, I seem because you mentioned the '70s as well, and I think that's important. I don't think the the our, the memories of all the, the creature effects movies of the eighties are really complete without sort of looking even behind those because I remember towards the mid to late seventies and and I grew up back east you know and we'd go to see drive-in movies and there were some great movies that 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 just just they weren't I am sorry they weren't brilliant right they weren't masterpieces but but they were very much beloved and I'm thinking of things like. Uh, uh, well, you know, John Chambers and the Planet of the Apes movies, uh, even those the, the terrible ending sequels. I still <laughs> loved them. I called them terrible. I loved them. Right. But, but other movies like uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau and and uh, Food of the Gods and like this. What was it? Uh, um, that whole chain of, 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 uh, of, of low-budget creature movies that were all Like practical. the Corman ones? Yeah. yeah. Well, the Cor and the Corman movie, certainly. Um, um, I'm trying to think of, of who, who the uh, who the guy was behind um, like Food of the Gods and
1: and. Uh, yeah, what was it? Um, Night of the Lepus. Yeah, and uh, stuff so the giant rabbits it's and things fun, like that. Fun, fun stuff. Seventies. Um, you know what? Um, I haven't read Steve's Steve's book, and I don't have a copy of it, and I don't know where to get a copy. I just I can wish ask them to send you one. I just wish someone would give me a free copy, <laughs> but. I was talking to Steve Norrington, Stephen Norrington, uh-huh. who directed Blade and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And he worked with Steve back on Greystoke. He's, he was uh-huh. an animatronics guy. And so he's a buddy of ours. Steve uses ADI as a workplace because he's working on a bunch of crazy projects of his own. But... Um, He said of Steve's book, he said, this would make a fantastic movie. And and I don't know, but but from Steve's description, it's like a, um, it could be a, uh, you know, Cameron Crowe kind of crazy. Or uh, what was that one uh, that uh, Sam Rockwell directed that was uh, about uh, um, the guy from The Gong Show? Yeah, George, uh, George Barris. Oh, and no, he was he, in it too, right? <clears throat> Sam Rockwell was in it. Sam <clears> Rockwell was in it, I believe, yeah. And he's or no, George, a George Clooney. Chuck Barris. Right. George Clooney directed Sam Rockwell. Was, yeah, it right. wasn't
0: Making of a Murderer, but it's something
1: like that. Yeah, I can't remember what it was, but it was a fun movie. Confessions yeah? of um, Of a hitman or a or a yeah. assassin or something. Right. Anyway, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it was... I just don't know if the reach... Is there enough of an audience who of people who would be like, Oh my God! Look, now we're on the set of uh, of Dawn of the Dead. Or I something. think so. You would have to yeah. oh, yeah.
2: think when you when you consider maybe maybe it's not theatrical, but when you look at all the all the uh, uh, the download, all the streaming, there's there's such a wide range of material and and and, and such sharp, uh, high end like 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 this thing that that uh, my wife and I start watching with, with the the magnificent uh, Mrs. Maisel, right? Or the marvelous Mrs. May, and it's about this woman who, who uh, in the late fifties, who, who's who's embarking on a, uh, a stand-up comedy uh, career, just sort of on a fluke. And I'm thinking, you, you see, sitting around in an office, going, "How many fans are there of women right. stand-up comedians from the <laughs> late 50s? And, and it's it's just loaded with details, and 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 which gives it a real poignant yeah. reality.
1: Well, now you have uh, guys like uh, Tarantino, who um, who grew up, uh, you know, as fans of. Uh, of all those guys of Savini and, uh, mm-hmm. and Romero and all that kind of stuff. So maybe, uh, maybe they, they find a way to make this story, um, you know, to warrant a 25 million, $30 million movie.
0: I think it could be a show. It could be like a mad show. men style so, show uh-huh. about the, when rubber yeah, ruled in eighties and nineties, I think why that would not? be super duper yeah. cool. Yeah. Cause I think the kids nowadays are realizing that, Practical special effects during that heyday were mm. magical in mm-hmm. ways that they're just mm-hmm. not right yeah. now. Yeah, where do you guys arrive at that whole integration between practical and and CGI? Guillermo del Toro seems to be a big proponent of doing as much practical as possible, but kind of integrating practical with CGI. In the in the most effective ways, we find that we find
2: that um, particularly recently, and I said recently in the last fifteen or twenty years, is that most of the digital guys we work with say, "Please do as much of this as a practical effect on set as you can," and the director says, "Do as much of this as a practical effect as you can." And where the the sticking point becomes is, I think, at a production level where a, uh, a, a production company uh, or studio is putting so much money into a film. That that to to safeguard that look to have some continuity to that look right. Marvel movies have a very specific look. Right, it's not like you walked out your front door and just took a picture of a world. And it's it's I mean it's a beautiful world. It's very artistic. It's a, it's a very beautifully art directed vision, but it's very consistent, and it's consistent because it can be controlled to such a degree because there are so many elements that are combined digitally. But but for us, uh, and and as far as our practical work, we find that if we can count on digital work to to support us, you know, and for us to support them, that's always much better than than the the, the the uh, uh, the competition of feeling like it's 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 just well we'll we'll throw um, we'll throw a, a few million dollars to digital and see what they come up with the concept and we'll throw a few hundred dollars to the practical and see what they come up with the concept it's it's sort of it's it's like a it's an unfair bargain uh, uh, for us to be able to, to try to compete at that
1: level right. and you mentioned Del Toro as a proponent of the mixed approach and and um, he is one of the rare directors that has the clout to impose that upon a studio, because the studio doesn't necessarily want to go practical. Uh, We spoke to uh, some years ago, a few years ago, five, six years ago, um, a gentleman by the name of John Swallow, who was the head of production at Universal. And we just point blank asked him because he's a straight shooter, a great guy. We said, John, why do things go uh, digital? At this studio, at Universal or at any studio, he said, "Guys, because I don't want to pay for it twice." He says, "In my XP, if you imagine Wilfred Brimley, that's that's how <laughs> I don't want to pay for the fucking thing twice." Right? He said that because uh, what happens is directors change their minds and in test screenings and mm. people just start they uh, uh, they decide that, "Oops, we made a mistake," and uh, so we're going to have to replace this now. So then he's paid for it as a practical up front, which then people change their minds and the only option you have at that late hour is digital and then you put it you put a big demand on the digital artists and you know they're they have nervous breakdowns because they got to do something in 2 months that should take uh 6 months or 8 months. Um and so those these are the kind of the forces but a guy like Del, and he said, Del Toro is the only guy I trust. Wow. Del Toro will tell me, I want to have big wings on this thing, and they're wow. going to be practical. And I believe that they will stay practical. Hmm. Um, and I think what's missing from his from that equation is that uh, what he's not taking into account is that pre-production times have shrunk. Like when we worked on uh, Aliens, we had probably nine months of pre-production time that used to be the a matter of course you would take nine months to prep and build uh, a, a movie and also refine the script during mm-hmm. that time There, at some point i've heard people credit it to disney when they said hey wait a minute we're taking out a big loan on this movie that, from our line of credit um nine months in advance we're paying interest on that what if we just do that for three months and we prep for three months. So you're prepping these huge movies in three months. And then no wonder by the time you start shooting, the script isn't ready. Nothing's really quite fully baked. And then it's in test screenings. And when the movie comes together, you discover what's wrong with the movie. Right. And then you scramble around reshooting and trying to fix it. And it's uh, that's an economic thing that has nothing to do with, gee, we fans love the tactile quality of practical effects. That has nothing to do with it. Uh, it's it and the and the digital work the digital model is what supports the studio's decisions to truncate the the, the, the pre production schedules.
2: There's, there's sorry. There's also there's also an element of of
1: of, uh, of a financial
2: sort of. Um, self-fulfilling prophecy, too, where there are some projects where we will bid on, uh, we'll we'll give them a script, we'll do a breakdown, we'll say, this could be the practical, this, 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 this. Here's something that could be a practical and digital combination. Here's something that's a little beyond this. And what will happen is then a a, a production a producer or a production company will look at it and say, you know what? W- yes, we can use this and this and this, but wow, these prices are pretty high because there hasn't been a dollar spent yet on this movie. So mm. go, guys, what can you do? How do you how can you give me all of this but give it to me for less? And, and you go back and forth and back and forth, and suddenly you have a, a, a much smaller percentage of of what you want to not just build something but design and prototype. We're always going to the, the set now with prototypes, and that wasn't always the case. Um, when we had these beautiful build schedules, we would build design, build and prototype something and work out the kinks and then rebuild what had to be rebuilt. So now we're not doing that. So we go to set with things that aren't a hundred percent and a director who isn't involved in the decision to mm. cut the cost is now wondering, well, why can't this thing spit fire? Right? So that becomes a little bit of an, of an element where, where you, you kind of get painted into a corner and, and it becomes sort of a, a black mark against practical because, because there's nobody that's there telling the people,
0: telling the, the studio and everybody on set exactly why it is what it is. And in the mix of all of that, practical effects get completely axed. Well, it sounds like it's incumbent upon directors to insist on a practical approach. It's all in their
1: hands. We would love that, but that's not the case. Very few directors can stand up to a studio. Very few of them can stand up. Or if they can stand up, they go, I gotta pick my battles. What right. do I want? Do I want the actor of my choice or do I do I, do I want uh, uh, you know, an extra ten days of shooting? You know, that that may not be a related cost to practical or do I? Am I insisting on having puppets on 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 film? You know, on right. set. You know, and then add to that uh, tax incentives. A lot of you know, hmm. a lot of movies are shot in tax incentive places. So if you can go to Louisiana, or you can go to um, Europe somewhere where you get back thirty cents on the dollar, forty cents on the dollar for every dollar you spend. Uh, in that country, Mm -hmm. spending it in Los Angeles in an animatronics studio is literally what we've been called a bad spend. That's what we've, you're a bad spend. So you guys are lucky to be on this show because you're a bad spend. Well, what what are you going to do? Are you going to go to Romania and get sophisticated animatronics? No, we're going to go to Romania and get digital work because we can get digital work done in Romania or India or wherever. And from a, from a, I don't mean to sound like like it's just a complaint, right? But it, but it, the, the, these are the things that once you understand, oh, it's the economics of this. Once right. you talk to enough producers or you have friends that are you know producers or line producers or what have you, they go, no, let me explain something to you. It's not about quality. It's not about what the director wants. It's about how do we make this movie? How do we get this movie from? From not being greenlit to the next stage, which is greenlit to the next stage, which is going into production, and a lot of it are just working off of assumptions. We will shoot in a tax incentive place. We will use uh, a tax incentive digital. You know, we will not have it, uh, SAG puppeteers on set because that takes money out of the back end, mm-hmm. and we have to pay residuals. So there's a lot of like moving parts that a producer who has no particular particular allegiance to a technique. Uh, will plug in to get the movie made right. and and that's just the reality of it and I find it kind of not, now understanding a lot of the stuff it's kind of liberating to me because I don't take it personally anymore mm. like I used to think well why didn't that director you know choose this or stick up for us on that because it's not the director's call it's not the it's too much to expect a director is going to power through that. These days, it didn't used to be because you can point, well, what about Cameron? What about Spielberg? Yes. In the seventies, eighties, uh, uh, those were guys that were building their careers and people go, yeah, whatever you want. Or there was no digital back then, you know? Um, so they're just doing, people are just doing what they need to do to get these ever more expensive movies made. And they're more and more expensive, uh, for a variety of reasons, but, um, it kind of frees you up from, like, we have to explain this sometimes to younger people who work for us. Like, don't be upset if the movie doesn't turn out how you like, or if your work isn't, or if you don't get credit. Because the studio will come back to us. We negotiate. Like, how many credits do you get, right? Right. How, mo- how, mo- how do all those names end up on the screen? Well, a studio lawyer negotiates with every company or every individual or the union, right? Right. Um, how many names you get on there why do they care because they don't want a running time that is so long that they can't do X number of shows per day so they squeeze them all down it's like the, the extreme example that is on TV where they just start you know they have a, a union contract Oof. that says you got to show these even on TV you got to show your credits okay we're going to move them past in such a freaking blur <laughs> you won't be able to read them and then we're going to shrink them down to picture in picture ha 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 this is how we get around that right, right. we'll start the the, the commercial while your stupid credits are rolling, and so that's you know these are all things that are economics based, and they're not you know you just it's business you know right. it's Chinatown Jake it's business right you just have to uh, accept it and work within that system or try to create your own system, which is what we've done in making our own little movies.
2: Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. And you can you can, we we can disagree with something, but it doesn't mean we don't. It's not like we. We're disagreeing with it because we don't understand it. You right. can disagree and still understand it. It makes perfect sense because yeah. it is about. We'd, we'd much rather see more movies coming out. We'd much rather see more movies getting shown each day because the, the more it's like everybody floats at the same level. So you get more movies, you get more product out there, you get people more choices, it, it and, we, and more we're more work.
1: Yeah, and we're not endorsing uh, that. That, but we understand it. And I don't know, like, like we as guys who run a, a studio. Um we we are kind of like both artists and business people, and we understand um, the pains of both because we're squeezed all the time. How are we gonna get this thing done? If we want this job, we've got we ask for 12 weeks, we get six. We ask for X amount, we get y. How do you make it work? Well, to stay in business for 30 years, you got to make some some real, Um, painful decisions. Otherwise, you're throwing up your hands and you're going, this industry sucks and stupid and I'm out of it, man. Or you go, how do we make this work? How do we... And and part of the reason we make it work is because we still love what we do and we love seeing what our artists bring to it there's so many right. phenomenally talented sculptors painters mold makers seamstresses feather workers fur workers it's a fantastic creative bunch of people who we really love having around and we, in part it's not just for us but yeah it's for us but also it's, it's to keep this creative community alive mm-hmm. and i think every shop owner i would i would think would agree that you feel a sense of responsibility to your people, so you gotta, you gotta, you gotta bend, and you gotta figure out the ways to, to keep the work coming in. You
2: have to keep the work coming because they're all LA people. So again. And, and as much as they call it a bad spend, that pertains to to everybody that we work with in LA. So the best we can do is to be flexible in our negotiations and find a way to bring the cost in to offset what they're seeing, all, you know, in their in their uh, uh, tax incentives, and it and it becomes a very very difficult thing because we are uh, we're we're still passionate about the work. We have to be passionate about the work with the understanding of how the work works in the business Mm -hmm. but it makes it so so difficult when all you want to do is is bring work to people and i I guess the saving grace is because they are are all la and they are all freelance for the most part right right? if okay so people say i need i need a job have you got work going on and the answer sometimes is you know what we're bidding on something so if we don't get the work Relax. I'm sure you'll be working on this movie.
1: It just won't be here. It'll be mm. somewhere else. And there have been times where we've uh, we haven't gotten a show, and but we know it goes over to another studio, and we'll uh, make a phone call on behalf of some artists. Say, hey, we know you have your own stock of people, but you know these guys are now available. So you know consider them. They're guys and gals that they're they're great, and 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 you ideally want to place them somewhere so that they're still in the business when you need them. Right. Right. Um, and, and that's also why why things like Monsterpalooza are great, um, social media and Instagram, Etsy, all that kind of stuff, so that artists can have income separate from the movies, so that they can pay their bills and be here and in the game mm-hmm. when ADI calls or when Spectral or Legacy calls. Um, and and me, for that reason, we we let our artists, uh, our key artists, um, not everybody, we just don't have enough space, but we let our key artists use shop space at ADI to create their own personal projects. That's you know, cool. Adam uh, Doherty is a great, very entrepreneurial guy, Creature Kid um, on Instagram, and he, he has... Uh, done some great little sculptures and manufactures of mass produces lines of mass producers they're still limited edition you mm-hmm. know, and sells them and uh so he's got table fulls of like little you know weird creature characters and stuff like How that cool. and um it's great because he's uh he's 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 doing it he's out there engaging in the market system in order to stay alive he's not moping and you know, right, wishing someone would wave the magic wand at him. You know, yeah. that's a tough thing for an artist is to is, is you kind of you put all this time into getting good at your craft and 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 that's what you want to do. That's where you're passionate. But then there's this whole other thing called business that you have to <laughs> you have to acknowledge is out there and 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 you have to engage in that system. And the irony of it is that I always tell this to like people who go to art school and all that is that you're an artist. You got into art art to make a statement and you know make people think and move people. And speak truth to power, and all that. And the irony is, you got to be the best capitalist out there. You have to be a better capitalist than uh, somebody with a normal job, yeah. because you have to promote yourself, and you have to understand how that how your market works, and that should be part of art school training. Yeah, not you know, yeah, keeping books and balancing a checkbook and all that. But also, how do you self promote? How do you get out there in this in the in a new in a new age? That where those tools are available to, you. and mm-hmm. and and I think I think if if artists could let go of this idea that you have to starve uh, or be tortured in order to uh, be an effective artist, then you know you might you, you might actually uh, be able to create more art, you know, right. and a, and, a, and an actual lifetime of art, as opposed to being a, a burnout or, or or whatever. I mean, ah, whatever. Okay. I, I'm not I'm not I don't mean to judge. People who do legitimately have problems and and work them out in their artwork. That's a wonderful thing for those people. But uh, but and and thank God they have their art. But uh, but it's not a requirement. Right. Well, I
0: feel like that's a huge point. I mean, what advice do you have for these kind of up-and-coming starry-eyed artists who want to get into practical special effects but need to know the business end? What are some of the skills that you think that they should consider learning in addition to their craft to just get themselves ready for for what lies ahead as far as Hollywood and and business decisions? and all? Well,
2: I think a good amount of that was what Alec has just mentioned, right? To be aware of what you need to do to kind of stand on your own and and know that there are going to be plenty of times where there isn't going to be an effects house that particularly has a Job that can make use of your particular skills. You can expand your skills. You know, when we were in the when we were in, I remember working. My very first job was was uh, working on some low budget Charlie Band picture through makeup effects labs, and I went in there. I had a book of stuff that I had done on my own, and. I they hired me and I learned things on the job, but but I was let's say I started you know, literally sweeping floors, and then I was making molds, and then I was sculpting, and then I was doing makeup designs, and I was creating foam runs, and then I was painting appliances, and then I'm gluing th- so gluing things on set, so in that and puppeteering, so in that one film it was like boot camp for all of those things but they made me much more of an attractive prospect to the next job that i had to move up because you had all these skills because i had skills so i had and and back then things weren't so segmented into into areas of production like a you know like a production line and we are that today we are we do have. we have guys that are strictly sculptors guys that are strictly mold makers and part of that is is just because again we don't have a lot of time to invest because we don't have a lot of time to build so we want people who are recognized but but i think if people can be aware that that there's a lot that, that is on their shoulders it's a big decision because um, these effects houses, un, un, unlike the films, the effects houses are the practical effects houses are here in L.A. They're not in in Louisiana and they're not in Vancouver as much mm-hmm. as right. So so the work has to happen here. So you have to be kind of kind of uh, cost effective, and you have to be willing to uh, once you, once the show is over, if there's not another show for you, you have to hit the streets, and you have to, to more importantly keep. Uh, an open dialogue with, with, with the different shops and the different places where you hope to be hired or different people that can help speak yeah. to your talents, to somebody that's unfamiliar with you. So networking is really important. Networking and, and a lot of self motivation. If you're not working, you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't be laying on a couch watching TV at 11 o'clock in the morning. You should right. be out doing things, finding ways to support yourself. Like Alec mentioned, you know, Adam Doherty, um, or, 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 improving your skills or creating another mask or another makeup or another piece of art that goes into your portfolio to show how you're growing as an artist. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's when we, when we look at portfolios, we, we say, you know, don't show me something you did for a big movie. Show me your personal artwork. Cause that's, that's interesting. That shows us who you are and what your angle is, what you love and where your inspiration is. I don't mean to say, don't show me anything from a big movie because you want to know that the person has chops. Right. Right. But, the good thing is that a lot of young people who have not really had any professional experience, they're a little sheepish about showing personal projects. And and to us, that's that is really what is the most interesting. That's that's what's coming out of your brain and out of your fingertips, um, and and that shows you know what you're into and who you are. Um, the 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 hardest thing for me about advice to young people now is is like knowing what the landscape is because now thirty years down the line of of, of having a, a studio, we know what our challenges are. But I don't really know what the challenges are to to a young person uh, trying to break in. I know that um, that you know if if I'm not working, I look around. If I'm not working, and if a couple of other shops aren't working, then all you've got is your own resources, right? Mm-hmm. Which is which is as Tom said, improving your own skills, and and then and then branding yourself through social media and coming up with with an angle of of what you're doing i think of some of the things i see on instagram and i get very hopeful for younger artists like um there's one uh i i'm, I'm gonna blank on her name she does miniature stuff um, and it's all like little miniature houses and minute it's great stuff she's i think she's worked for leica and mm-hmm. she's done stuff but she's also selling very much like Creature Kid, right? Alan right. Doherty. They're, they're selling things and they're and they're presenting their stuff with nicely photographed images and little movie vignettes and clever stuff. And they they have taught themselves to speak well, mm. you know, on camera and and promote their themselves as artists. And, right. and I don't know if she's selling stuff, but uh, it's pretty cool. And 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 she's not unique. There are there are people who are who are doing. Um, artwork and and they're at least getting them out there you know Um, and and that's what you got to do you got to be self-reliant uh, because, or if you can find a job at a, uh, if all that stuff scares you, and you know, if you can find a job at an amusement park, if you can, find, you know, I mean, like a development, you know, right. uh, uh, play company, um, or or if you can find work with a haunted house attraction or, or whatever, or, or mask, right? There's, there's different Masks. In these big mask companies, so
2: you have these yeah. artists like 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 uh, uh, Mikey Ratz and, and and Wayne Anderson and, and His Distortions
1: uh, Unlimited still going out in Colorado. Well, and
2: they're they self they self promote. Exactly the same yeah. way. They're online. They self promote. They go to the mask shows. Um, th- they have great things. They're always they're always turning out new um, amazing collectible masks, and there's a market for them, so right. that they can they can keep themselves afloat. Because Los Angeles is a very expensive place. To live, and that's another mm-hmm. thing that's that's kind of a, a, a bad hand that is dealt to you.
1: And Monster Palooza is full of very talented people. Yeah. I guess it would be daunting if you, if you're just starting out and you're new, and you're like, I want to work doing practical effects, and you walk through a place like Monster Palooza, and there's some folks from Kentucky or something that are that have monsters and Halloween stuff, and they're just like great looking stuff, and and you're wondering how the hell do you do you compete with that? What do you have to do to be noticed and to be And then there's another aspect of this, which is that um, uh, a day job is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not right, like working at a, a Starbucks or doing whatever. Like that guy who was bagging groceries that everybody made a big thing about, right? He was an actor from The Cosby Show, and he was caught working a day job just bagging groceries. There's pride to be taken in that because that is a... You're a creative person and you got to pay your bills. He takes paying his bills seriously. Mm -hmm. He's not moping around doing nothing or, you know, whatever. So you got to keep yourself busy. And there is a a, a case to be made for saying, okay, I don't really have the uh, will or the drive to put everything on the line and go to L.A. and, trapes around and try to make myself build myself a career i really don't want to do that there are other things i want in life i want to be able to you know buy a house sooner or but you know whatever you may want to do all those mundane things that people that's what makes a a builds a life right so some people will have those day jobs and they will do wonderful fantastic things on the side yeah craig sturtz is a guy who we, we we put him in uh, Harbinger down. He was uh, he was a um, a pledger. He's a doctor and a talented doctor. But on, but he does these amazing paintings, wildlife paintings. He sculpts. He he came in and um, he did some appliances for us on Wellwood. Just said, I want to contribute. Do you have any appliance needs? Yeah, we need a broken pinky. We need a a chemo port. You'd be perfect for that, doc. <laughs> and he sends us a box full of beautiful silicone appliances wow. that he's taught himself how to make. And um, You know, so so you can't it is perfectly acceptable to not risk everything and 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 pursue something. And you have to anyway, even if you're even if you are working in the in the industry, it's so up and down. You have to have sidelines and and, and other income streams and all that stuff. So you mentioned Harbinger
0: down. I would love to talk about it. Uh, I think a lot of people have probably already read about the whole thing debacle, and not going to make you relive mm, that. Mm. But it sounds like Harbinger Down was the product of that, having built all these
1: beautiful yeah. practical special effects. There were a number of things that came out of that um, our, our Thing 2011 experience. You know, where where you know you hit the. We saw it coming really before other people did, but you know we want we're team players, so we want the movie to do well. You know, we we waited for it to come and go. I think it was even after it went on to. VOD, And then we decided, you know, we're getting a lot of questions. What did you guys do? Did you guys screw up? How come this? That, you know? So rather than get into any commentary on why things happened, as we, we did, we just put up a video uh, on, on our channel that showed what we did. And it got a tremendous reaction. And the upside is it kind of pulled us out of a funk, you know, because we mm-hmm. were looking at Rick Baker had stuff cut from his Men in Black movies. Right. From right. the the Wolfman also. I'd love to see that video of transformations and stuff because they built stuff and tested it I assume. Um, and, and and you know it's happening to everybody. It's happening to Stan Winston. So it's it no one's immune. Um, and it isn't about the quality of the work. It's other forces that mm-hmm. are that are that that we can't control. So it was nice to get that positive feedback. And then we thought, well, maybe there's something we can tap into with um, asking people to to uh, support the, the 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 art via. Crowdfunding, mm-hmm. right, and that brought us a portion of of the money, and then uh, Sultan Aldarmaki from uh, Dark Dunes, who's a big uh, fan of, of 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 effects, and has gone on to do puppet movies like uh, uh, Kids versus Monsters, and he's got Yama Song is a full, complete rod puppet movie with digital compositing oh, and all cool. that kind of stuff, and so he's a big supporter of of creature and, and practical effects. He brought more money into it that elevated the. Um, the 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 film, and then it was just you know what we said was we're going to do basically we're going to do an homage to the the original thing and to Alien right so it's going to be an eighties feel to it we're mm-hmm. going to we're going um, to not necessarily set it in the eighties and not do a parody either or a spoof cause right. there's always kind of a snarkiness to to parodies I think that that where the you kind of feel like the filmmakers feel like they are better than the genre that they're spoofing and that's rarely true you know. Um so so that's what that's what the idea behind Harbinger was it's going to be like comfort food and we are not going to use any digital uh creature effects in it we're going to use digital as a support tool which mm-hmm. is what we we would like to see more of rig removal wire removal right. compositing um and there was a creature that we put uh, digital blinks onto. But that was the extent of it. There's no 3D digital Mm -hmm. animation. There's model work and miniatures and all that. Even to the point where, um, again, mentioning Steve Norrington, he did a bunch of great digital stuff for us. um, and, And there was one transformation scene where he said, I want you to see, here's the shot with your practical elements composited on Matt Winston's back look at this. Now here's what I did in 3d digital animation. And in that case, his 3d CGI looked better than the practical version. <laughs> and I had, that was a painful decision. I had to say, no, I can't use your higher quality work in this film because that's not the promise. Right. So, um, so, you know, we, we put it out there and it's interesting because the, uh, a lot of the people who were part of the Kickstarter and I think we had 3,066, um, uh, people, uh, uh pledging and I think we got like we only really had about I don't know we had a handful of people who Mm -hmm. were upset with delivery of, of uh, t-shirts and things like that and in and, and it's a very difficult thing to stay on top of and to do it in a timely fashion yeah. of people's expectations you become amazon.com you know right the, and they think that there's a staff of people working <laughs> and no there isn't there's my daughter right that's right. that's who's doing this and in most cases uh, some of the things are just simple misunderstandings like uh, pe- people people uh, would change their uh, addresses because it's a year it takes a year to fulfill all this stuff because we're also making a movie and uh so things and then people would get very reasonable go oh i'm sorry here's my new address my new mailing address or my new email address or whatever and we'd rectify it but um we had a very high success rate of uh of of satisfaction with the kickstarter itself Mm -hmm. with the movie it was interesting because because i think that um you know we originally it was for that community right just for a small community of people that i thought they'll get this you know they'll 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 see that that we are um that we it's a mashup, right? And it, mm-hmm. as I said, it's like comfort food. But because um, it, the, the movie was good enough that it got a wider release, it got a worldwide release, it got it went theatrical all over the world. Um, it went to uh, VOD all over the world and all the various territories. People who were not aware of whatever it was, they're just seeing a, a trailer like, Oh, what's this? Oh. some people would say, you know, you read in the comments, Bullshit. Looks like the thing on the boat. Looks like the thing on a boat. And then the very next comment is awesome. Looks like the thing on a boat. <laughs> or one thing. This looks like uh, some eighties uh, movie. Uh, sucks. And then somebody else says it's like an eighties movie. Fantastic. So um, I felt good about the target audience that it was uh, made for. But I can understand why people would look at it and go, huh? Why are you, why are you ripping off Carpenter? You know, or whatever. Uh, but and, I, and that, I'm sure that's how they talk too. What about they do? <laughs> what about their mouth breathers? Um, uh, no, I, I, you know, hey, whatever. You can. It's all about opinion. Anybody can have any any opinion they want uh, about anything, uh, and that's okay. Um, but I felt like it did connect uh, with the people that it was intended to connect. Oh, cool.
0: And what is Wellwood? You'd mentioned that before. What's Wellwood all about?
1: Tom, I can't keep talking. <laughs> How I've, I I haven't, to had, enough. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> had enough peanuts. Well. <laughs> Go ahead, Tom. Wellwood's another uh,
2: another (laughs) Studio ADI project, and and uh, uh, even less. I was even less connected with Wellwood than I was with Harbinger Down. While we while we were producing Harbinger Down, I was off directing Fire City, which was a uh, another low budget Kickstarter movie, but written by a, a producer writer producer team. Uh, these two guys that, that, that took a chance on me and, and turned out, I thought, very well and, and, and got some great reviews, got some bad reviews. Like Alec said, everybody has different opinions. But with Wellwood, we were both uh, executive producers, so that meant that we made what we could available in terms of allowing uh, some scenes to be shot at ADI. Mm-hmm. Alec took on uh, most of the work of doing the creature effects, right? Just that labor of love, passion, because there are certain things that at this level of film... That he was able to experiment with, you know, like like clear vacuform pieces and 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 three D printing for molds and and quick and, and and dirty ways of getting a great looking thing, things that that a, that a big studio picture would not allow would not allow you to take a chance on, right? So it was it was an, an, a a chance an opportunity to develop further techniques of of like employing more modern techniques like like 3D modeling and digital right. printing and and test them in a very safe environment which is a small low budget film
0: that's great that you're able to put out your own films where you can kind of flex muscles that you wanted to work on before and, and specific new it techniques. Gives, right, it, gives it,
2: it gives us an opportunity to have something personal. Like I said, Alec was so personally involved in, in yeah. designing and creating these aliens and it did give us the ability to we're, you know, to help hone our image as studio ADI separate from amalgamated, separate mm-hmm. from ADI, studio ADI being thing where it's a content generator. It's, it's going to be ideas and it's going to be all kinds of different material, short form stuff like on our youtube channel Mm -hmm. long-form stuff like these low-budget movies but we really want the studio adi name to become a brand that people understand it means it's going to be some very quality you know high quality creature based character content uh in a variety of different at a variety of different levels
0: so you you are looking for more partners to turn to you guys and do practical driven films yeah
1: listen we we want to make Lower budgeted movies that have cool stuff that fans want to see. Dan is doing movies now,
0: more and more movies, and they yeah. are strictly practical. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw the last Puppet Master, Tate Steinzick. Yeah. No, I haven't seen it, but I saw that. See, see it, see it. It's all yeah, practical. Here it's great. Yeah, what is it? The, the Littlest Right? The Littlest Right. That
1: is freaking <laughs> hilarious. That is a great title. It's the
0: most insanely offensive horror movie you've ever seen. Really it's spectacular. All the puppets are now Nazis yeah. that have been resurrected as Can't puppets. Can't beat that. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: It's yeah. pretty
0: insane. So then they all go. Attack minorities.
1: Oh, wow,
0: yeah, Is oh, right? yeah, wow, yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it
2: was good timing for this movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty bold, exactly. Yeah, they're pretty bold, but they're doing almost strictly practically driven movies mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They- mm-hmm.
1: All right, let's go, Tom. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Knock off hey, Fangoria's door. A real radio guy would have both of his feet moving. Yeah, coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> so, a few, a uh, few last quick questions were there any? Projects that fell through the cracks that were particularly painful, like ones that got away that you were working on that you like, oh, I wish that would have happened. Uh, yes.
2: Um, I remember uh, Tremors 4 was hard when, when Tremors 4 went to KNB, not be, uh, for, for any artistic reason other than we thought like, oh, we're a family. We're part of the Tremors family. Wait, wait, who's doing part 4? Because we, we just couldn't come up with the, uh, the cost for them to, to part 4 and go into a series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then part 5, I guess... Kevin Bacon went back for for Tremors Five.
1: Uh, and Tremors Five was the South African. Yeah. thing. The, the TV pilot was the only one Kevin went oh, back okay. for, and I, that only went to pilot. Yeah, only even went know, to pilot.
2: So I don't know. But, what, but again, yeah. it went to somebody else. So so the, the, those are hard because you you you, 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 do, you do make the mistake of, of thinking a family type. Contact in a business world is mm-hmm. like a family type contact somewhere else. It's it's not the same. It can be as good as it could be, but it's ne- It's no. There are no guarantees. Right. It was a big
1: disappointment when uh, uh, Ridley Scott's I Am Legend folded. Because we had done a lot of work on that, done test makeups for it, you know, we're looking forward. to finally get to work with Sir Ridley, right? And um, it was just, you know, ten million dollars too expensive for Warner Brothers, apparently, and uh, they didn't make it until years later, a decade later, with Francis Lawrence and all digital, uh, all digital stuff. So, yeah, um, that was kind of a drag to miss out on that one. Um, I don't know. There was a funny thing when the first Men in Black uh, was. Uh, was happening, and you know we had credits. We had decent credits at the time, but we weren't like you know, you know, we, it, not as much as we have now. And um, we exited Amblin after just having had a great meeting. We're like, that was really cool. We opened the door, and there's Rick Baker. He's standing there. <laughs> oh, hey! And we're like, eh, enjoy the show. What we look forward that? to seeing Men in Black. Look we look black. forward to seeing your work, Mr. Baker.
2: <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. the same, thing. same. Happened right when we were uh, we were called in uh, also to Amblin I think to, to have a, a meeting for uh, 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 Galaxy Quest which was a hilarious script right mm-hmm. that'd be a big, great thing and and that was another thing where when we finished a meeting and we were we we got a little further out of the building out of the right. we were actually back in the parking lot and we see Stan Winston drive in in his Porsche <laughs> and, again the same kind of thing uh, shit we just I think that was a little more direct where he said. Stan, do you want to do this movie? Yes, I'm going to. I, yeah. Yes, I'm going to do this yeah. movie. Stan,
1: Stan was funny. He's like, "Listen, guys, I love you. I will always refer work to you that I can't do, but I can do everything."
0: <laughs> That's assuring.
1: <laughs> he was good though. He did point people our way, and he he uh, he he was a very good. He was a true mentor.
0: That's great. Yeah. So I was on your website recently, obviously to to research, and you have a pretty cool store. I've yeah. um, um, a lot of really, really, really cool props. So people should definitely check that out. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There, uh, the, the goal with that one was to, uh, create a line of, um, art pieces really we we we, they they are not just collectibles they are they are actual art pieces that
0: swimming xenomorph was gorgeous I got
1: my eye on that and they're and they're all from our production mold so like normally you're used to getting a a collectible that um, is either a recreated thing Mm -hmm. that looks like a pretty good replica of something that's but it's not manufactured and painted by the company that created it for the films and in our case actual artists that worked on these films right so that's what we wanted to do is it's all going to, it's, it's, it's our people creating them. And as a result, the, they're more expensive. Mm-hmm. So that's a tough thing, you know, for people who are used to, to, to spending um, money on collectibles that are made in, in other countries by factories. Right. Um, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough thing. They want them. They love them. They see the difference. But these are in real deal
0: collectibles. I mean, these yeah. are real collector's items.
1: And they're gorgeous. I mean, they are, they are really, and Fox was very gracious. They gave us a great deal on, um, you know, cause we still had to buy the mm-hmm. license, um, uh, to, to do it. But they're like, you know, you guys, um, they, we actually had fans at Fox who want to see this succeed. So, uh, so we have it, we have the license. We'll see, you know, we still have to like kind of figure out whether or not it's, uh, worth it to us because it does cost you money to get into that game uh-huh. in terms of, uh, molds and production costs and all that. And whether or not it's it's exactly benefiting the artists um, enough, we're not really a hundred percent sure of. But we're still doing it, and uh, and we get we get orders, so we're filling them. Great. Well, we'll definitely provide a link in the show notes. for Thank sure. you very much. We and appreciate people that.
0: should follow you on your YouTube channel,
1: Studio ADI's channel on the YouTube. Tom's Instagram is Tom underscore
2: Woodruff Jr. You don't have to subscribe to me on Instagram, but going back for a moment to that
1: youtube channel i understand we should subscribe oh oh yes if we didn't mention that please (laughs) subscribe because we're promoting practical effects on that and we want to start upgrading the quality of 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 what we put out there and making more interesting stuff so we need more subscribers like you oh
2: alec gillis instagram
1: oh yeah oh well alec alec underscore gillis yeah um this relates to our YouTube channel, actually. There's an interview I did a fun interview with Kevin Yeager. Um, oh wow! Uh, yeah, and it's a, it's a blast, right? And I learned that Kevin has more Instagram followers than I do. So I want to I want to put that guy in his place. So get out there and subscribe. No, don't subscribe. Follow. Yes, subscribe. You. T- oh, this is a mess, Tom. Help. What do I do? <laughs> more peanuts. We'll just, you'll just re-edit this. <laughs>
0: I think if you follow on Instagram and you subscribe on YouTube, I think that's what so glad you're here. Yeah, I'm happy to help, (laughs) guys. This was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. This is really really cool. We appreciate it. Thanks. All right, so overall, I feel like this interview does a really great job of illustrating the trials and tribulations of practical effects studios in this era of CGI. A fantastic book on the topic is Rubberhead by Steve Johnson. It's also loaded with some incredible pictures. Definitely check out Rubberhead if you can. But regardless of anything, the good fight is being fought for practical effects as more and more directors like Guillermo del Toro and J.J. Abrams are outspokenly utilizing practical effects for their major blockbuster movies and blending it with digital. Even James Wan opted to use as many practical makeup effects as he could for his CGI extravaganza Aquaman. The pendulum is swinging back towards practical, and I personally believe that the reason we're seeing so much rampant nostalgia for the 80s and 90s is because of practical effects. People miss having movies that had effects and characters that they could feel. Effects and characters that had that tangible gravity that their minds and hearts just believed. It's not just makeup effects, though. Explosions, car crashes, and other stunts and special effects are simply way more effective when they're done practically. Just look at Mad Max Fury Road. George Miller did the majority of those insane car sequences entirely practically, only dressing up a couple things here and there with digital Anyhow, as always, here are some key takeaways from my conversation with Tom and Alec for aspiring practical effects makeup artists. Number one, provide options for the director. Alex spoke about the importance of presenting different design options to directors so that you can get into his or her head and instantly understand the look they're going for through trial and error. Alec recommends presenting a boring option, an option that is completely out of left field, and something in between. Number two, be a capitalist. Alex states that in creative endeavors, you need to understand business, probably more so than in non creative endeavors. Artistic professions are extraordinarily difficult to make a living at and require not only ceaseless passion, but financial acuity as well. Alex states that if you're an artist, it's incumbent upon you to understand business, your products, your marketability, and how to get out there and network and promote yourself properly. This is huge. Number three. Don't forget to do you. When Tom and Alec are recruiting other artists they ask their applicants to show them not just what they worked on when they were working on big movies, but what they created on their own time. They want to see what kind of art matters most to their applicants because doing this enables them to really get a grasp on what their people are most passionate about. This is why it's critically important to constantly be improving your craft through your own personal side projects. It not only enables you to get valuable practice in, but it helps you further develop and arrive at your own personal aesthetic. And this is something that steve johnson talks about very extensively is that some of the best practical effects artists had their very specific aesthetics and directors would choose them based on those aesthetics one of the problems right now with practical effects is a lot of the looks are getting homogenized there's not as many practical effects artists who have their own signature aesthetic and it's what used to make the industry great and it's what the industry needs to start moving towards again Anyway, having portfolios of personal projects is part of what shapes artists. Tom and Alec recommend building an extensive portfolio of your own personal projects because it showcases your own unique sensibility. Anyway, guys, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out Tom and Alec's YouTube channel. It's pretty amazing, and it is just nothing but candy for practical effects fans. You can find it on YouTube at Studio ADI and you can see their very cool store at StudioADI.com. Thank you again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to follow the show on the Instagrams at I am Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And if you really want to do me a huge solid, feel free to share this episode with your friends, family, and colleagues on the social media. I'm Nick Taylor, and thank you again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.